Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Thank you for joining us this afternoon in the Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. I'm Andrew Parks, the uh, Assistant Director of Lectures and Seminars, and I just wanted to take the opportunity to remind everyone attending in person to please silence your cell phones and let everyone know who's watching online. You're welcome to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. Today's program is being broadcast and recorded, and the recording will be available on the heritage.org website uh, for future reference and archiving purposes. Now it's my pleasure to introduce the host of today's program, or moderator, I should say, uh, John Venable, JV, and he is the Senior Research Fellow for Defense Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. Andrew, thank you for kicking us off. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. What a great place to be on a cold afternoon. Thank you for joining us. A nice crowd, uh, um, incredibly and strikingly handsome, I might add as well. Uh, If I could uh, just add to Andrew's thing, after five years of stunned silence, my phone went off in church on Sunday. And while I enjoyed the associated attention, it's not for the faint of heart. So if you could check that phone one more time before we start, I'd be grateful. In less than two weeks, the United States is going to withdraw from uh, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia. It's been on the books at least for 31 years, and this move is substantial. And with that as a backdrop, I can't think of a better time or a a better panel to discuss what the post-INF world might look like. Um, To give you an overview of our hour and a half or so together, I'm going to spend a little time introducing our guests. And then with with your um, concurrence, we'll give each of them about 10 minutes to talk uh, about the issue and and the the way they deem fit. And then I'll take 30 minutes or so to kick them in the shins with my question. And then we'll open it up to you all to to complement the remaining portion of our time. Does that sound like a fair use of our afternoon together? Okay, with that, let me take a moment to introduce these fine folks. Rebecca Herzman is sitting uh, to my immediate left. She's the director of the Project on Nuclear Issues and senior advisor for the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Prior to her current role, Rebecca served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for countering weapons of mass destruction within the Obama administration. There, she led DOD policy and strategy to prevent WMD proliferation, reduce and eliminate WMD risks, and respond to WMD dangers. Rebecca served as DOD's principal policy advocate on issues pertaining to the Biological Weapons Convention, the Chemical Weapons Convention, the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, and Cooperative Treaty Reduction or Threat Reduction Program. 
prior to joining DOD in 2009, uh, Rebecca was a uh, senior research fellow for the Center for the Study of Weapons of Mass Destruction at NDU, the National Defense University. She holds an MA in Arab Studies from Georgetown University and a BA from Duke University. Uh, Brian McKeon was, uh, is the senior director of the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement. Before his current position, Brian served as the Pentag at, at the Pentagon as the principal deputy undersecretary for policy and then as the acting undersecretary for the last seven months of the Obama administration. In the years immediately preceding his time at DOD, Brian served as the deputy assistant to the president executive secretary and chief of staff of the National Security Council and deputy national security advisor to then Vice President Joe Biden. In the Senate, Brian served for 12 years as the chief counsel to the Democratic members of the Committee on Foreign Relations and concurrently as the deputy staff director for two of those years. Prior to serving on that committee uh, staff, Brian served as the legislative assistant for foreign policy and defense to Senator Joseph Biden, Jr., a relationship that obviously endures to this day. Brian is a graduate of the University of Notre Dame and holds a Juris Doctorate diploma from the Georgetown University Center of Law. Finally, uh, our very own Tom Callender is a research fellow for Defense Matters here at the Heritage Foundation. Before joining us, Tom served as the Director of Capabilities within the Capabilities and Concepts Directorate, Office of the Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy for Policy. There, he assessed naval programs, technological development, and warfighting concepts and their impact on the strategic posture for the Navy and Marine Corps of the future. Following his graduation from the United States Naval Academy, Tom was commissioned and served for more than 20 years, primarily as a submarine officer on board the attack submarines USS City of Corpus Christi and USS Albany, with numerous deployments to the Med and the North Atlantic Ocean. Tom also served as a speechwriter for the Vice Chief of Naval Operations, the VCNO, and as Senior International Affairs Action Officer in the Office of the Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy. Tom holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Physics from the U.S. Naval Academy and a Master of Science degree in Applied Physics from Johns Hopkins University. Now, if that doesn't add to the fact that these are stunningly attractive people, they're wicked smart, too. So would you take a minute to welcome this panel of folks, Wendy? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, why don't we kick it off? Rebecca, if you would, start with your remarks, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I will say the de rigueur statement, which is I am speaking in my personal capacity, so no need to hold CSIS or any prior employer uh, responsible for anything I may say. Um, we were asked to talk about some of the key elements of a post-INF world. Um, it's too bad we're here actually talking about a post-INF world. I wish we weren't, um, but we are. And uh, for a lot of reasons, most principally, we are looking at that world because Russia chose not to comply with the treaty. So that's going to be my baseline going into these comments while recognizing I have a feeling by the time I get to my, the end of my comments, they may differ with the views of others at the table on the what to do about it. But for me, you know, that fundamental is a believer in treaties and a believer in international law and in the international rules-based system the rules do have to mean something. So let's start with that as a baseline. So if we look ahead um, to that post-INF world, maybe we'll you know, find a way to get back to it. 
we could talk about if that's possible, but I'm sort of assuming that that may be a bridge too far for now. Um, so what do we need? What's most important? I believe we need to set a goal of preventing destabilizing arms racing while reinforcing effective deterrence. Second, I believe we need to preserve and protect and hopefully expand arms control arrangements that support strategic stability, promote deterrence, and do so at lower cost and lower risk. Third, I believe we need to promote and sustain alliances and the cohesion of those alliances both in Europe and in Asia. And finally, we need to rebuild a domestic and an international political coalition that supports nuclear modernization, effective deterrence, and arms control. Now, before you all say that's motherhood and apple pie, and maybe everyone can agree on those basic principles, I think we'll get into the, well, what, how do we actually get there? Um, so let me say right up front on the how, I don't see the principal solution or the principal problem in achieving those goals as being a capability gap problem. I don't believe we have a stuff problem. I don't believe we have, you know, it's something we can buy to solve this problem. Um, so I think that that is not where I see the solution. I do see some important and fairly near-term steps that perhaps we could take that sustain this principle in terms of our belief in rules matter, the rules-based system matters, and we want to promote our arms control that supports that in a couple of areas um, of, of things I think could form some key pillars of U.S. policy. So let me throw some of those out there. First, I would like to see the United States declare that um, – while in a post-INF world, the United States can test and deploy ground-based intermediate-range missile systems, it has no need or intention to do so. We have the principle, but we do not need the capabilities, in fact. Second, I would make clear that while the United States stands for the principle of compliance, we also believe international agreements should be judged independently on their merits. And on that basis, New START should be extended. Third, I believe we should prioritize modernization of our nuclear triad and the associated command and control and infrastructure needs of our nuclear modernization program. That that should be based on the core program of record that has spanned two administrations from wildly different perspectives, but that managed to agree on those core elements. The flexibility, durability, and responsiveness of our triad-based nuclear posture provides a considerable hedge in a post-INF world and allows us to be responsive, but within existing constraints, to deal with almost any significant problem uh, Russia or another potential adversary could send our way. And finally, should we believe any capability enhancements are necessary in Europe, whether in the form of some additional ground-based offensive systems or, for that matter, most types of defensive or missile defense systems, the deployment of those capabilities should be done only in a NATO alliance context, not through bilateral arrangements, picking off elements of the alliance, but only with the full agreement of every single NATO member developed in advance. 
If we do those things, I think we actually reinforce the most important aspect of our credible deterrent, which is in fact our alliance cohesion, which is the idea that we can work with our alliances, we can support that cohesion, and we can build the political, um, both domestic and international community that's necessary to be firm in the face and to handle the kind of competitive environment that Russia, and to many, in many ways China as well, is putting our way. That consensus and unity, both at home and abroad, is absolutely essential to our deterrence posture and our ability to manage an increasingly competitive environment. Um, so with that, I would sort of hand it on to the next person. Great. Thank you very much, ma'am. Ryan? Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I agree with almost everything and maybe everything Rebecca said, so I'll try not to duplicate what she said and just make a few uh, top-line points as we start. Uh, first, as uh, I think, the, as was stated, the premise of this session is the INF Treaty is dead or soon will be. Uh, I think that's probably right, um, but the United States government hasn't quite made the final step. When the Secretary of State was in Brussels at the NATO ministerial in December, he talked to the press and said that in 60 days' time, if we did not see a change of heart from the Russians, we would suspend our obligations under the theory that the Russians have engaged in a material breach of their obligations under the treaty. And he didn't explicitly say it, but it was, seemed clear enough that we'll be sending our notice of withdrawal to the Russians, which would take effect six months after that. Now, the Secretary did say he would welcome a change of heart from the Russians if it were to come. Uh, I don't think we're going to see that, but I'm also a little skeptical that the administration really wants to see a change of heart. Uh, because I think at its core, many senior people in, in the Trump administration, starting with the National Security Advisor, really don't like arms control and would be happy to see the treaty go away. And then you have some folks uh, who worry about Asian security issues uh, in the Department of Defense and elsewhere who think that we need to come out of the treaty because of the threat of uh, China's intermediate-range missiles that they have uh, arrayed along their along their coastline. Um, I, I hold out a very small hope, and it's a very tiny hope, that uh, if the United States were does, in fact, trigger this suspension of obligations and DOD starts doing something that the Russians will see, that maybe that will focus minds in Moscow and they can make one last effort at saving the treaty, but I, I wouldn't hold my breath. Uh, so I would pronounce... Treaty's not dead yet, but it's on life support, and uh, I think there's a secret do not resuscitate order from Mr. Bolton, because I don't think there's a desire to keep the treaty. All this is to say that the Russians deserve, as Rebecca said, the bulk of the blame for the demise of this treaty. They've been violating it for a number of years, and they've been, uh, shall we say, less than forth forthright is the most polite thing I can say uh, in response to the dialogue that the United States has tried to engage with the Russian Federation on the, on the violation that we have seen. Uh, the State Department has a catalog of many engagements over the last five or six years on the issue. Uh, I was in one of these meetings in Moscow with a big bilateral delegation led by the Undersecretary of State at the time, Rose Gottmuller, uh, and you know, we wasted a lot of taxpayer dollars flying there to deliver talking points that we could have emailed to each other because it was a very scripted session where we had pretty much 
complete disagreement on the site picture of what the Russians had done, and they blamed us for also violating the treaty with various things and capabilities that we have. So it was not the most productive uh, international meeting I've ever been to. Um, that said, uh, I appreciate that the administration has made an effort here at the end, I think in part for alliance unity, and the Secretary of State was pretty frank about this in his press availability, that the 60-day period was designed to give the Europeans more time with their publics. Uh, I, I really don't perceive that the administration wants to salvage the treaty here at the end. I think this last, these last diplomatic efforts were mostly about uh, alliance unity, which is not to say it's a bad thing, but I don't think it's a, it, it was a real effort to try to preserve the treaty. So what do we do when the treaty dies? Um, Rebecca's laid out some good principles. Let me just add a few thoughts. One, I think it's still the view of the DOD, it was when I was there, that to counter the violation, we don't need to match the Russians system for system. Today we have INF compliant systems that the Russians wouldn't like if we expanded the presence of uh, within Europe, both air and sea-based capabilities. These are expensive because they're air and sea-based, but the Russians would not like the outcome. And we regularly in, in these conversations with the Russians said, look, we're not going to let you have a significant military advantage from this if you do this, and we will do things that you will, you will not like. Uh, and so I suspect that that's what DOD is working on in addition to existing capabilities. Um, and so we will see what they do. Uh, second, the United States faces and the alliance faces a much bigger challenge in Europe with regard to Russian uh, military and political behavior for the last six or seven years. That is not just about INF. The INS, INF violation should not be seen in isolation, but is part of the broader set of activities they have engaged in to undermine European unity, both uh, the NATO alliance and the European Union, uh, and a threat to European institutions, uh, not to mention the future of arms control. After the illegal actions in 2014 in Crimea and eastern Ukraine, the Department of Defense started something that we called the European Reassurance Initiative. The department now calls it the European Deterrence Initiative. It's a set of activities to sort of re-pivot to Asia, or Europe, excuse me. Um, you know, after the Cold War ended, policy of the United States was a Europe whole of free and at peace, and we tried to bring Russia into the Euro-Atlantic institutions. We scaled down militarily in Europe. Uh, we sort of lost muscle memory in the Department of Defense in, in planning for a contingency vis-a-vis -vis Russia. The Pentagon is doing a lot of things under the European De Deterrence Initiative. It started in 2014 or 15 with a few hundred million dollars in the budget. Budget request in fiscal 19 was almost $7 billion, so it's grown by a factor of 10. We're doing, and the department is doing a lot of things. Uh, it's funding a rotational presence or expand, ex expanded forward presence, I think is the term of art now. A lot more training, a lot more exercises pre-positioning of equipment, fixing infrastructure at uh, existing bases and at NATO, other NATO facilities, and building partner capacity of our NATO partners. You're, if the Russians thought by going into Ukraine uh, and in Crimea they were going to divide the NATO alliance and make it weaker, it has produced in many respects the opposite result. The, the alliance is much more 
unified than it has ever been vis-a-vis -vis Russia. The commitments that were made at the Wales Summit in 2014, combined with the pressure that's come from President Trump for NATO allies to do more, uh, has succeeded in strengthening the alliance both politically and militarily. We've updated war planning in a way we, the Department had not done in many years, working with the Scandinavians, even those countries that are not in NATO. Uh, you may have noticed, at least at the end of the Obama administration, the Deputy Secretary Bob Work traveled to the region frequently or hosted his counterparts, doing a lot of work with them. That's not about, that's all about Russia. Uh, and I think some of that work has continued. So it's just reinvigorating a lot of muscle memory. Third, I would add, I know it's not directly on point of INF in Europe, but the cruise missile threat in Europe is not the only cruise missile threat we face from Russia. Uh, we face it vis-a-vis -vis the homeland, the Missile Defense Review, just released by the Pentagon, talks about this a little bit, and they even identify the specific Russian capabilities. But as far back at least as 2016, the North Com Commander Admiral Gortney at the time said in public testimony, and I'll just read this, Russia possesses both conventional and nuclear cruise missiles with a range that can reach North America. This threat is real, and it's imperative that we develop effective response options to outpace the threat and enhance our deterrence. Uh, the Missile Defense Review just released also took note of this issue and makes reference to a three-phase plan that NORAD is pursuing. I don't know what the three-phase plan is, um, but look for more on that. And it also makes note, and this is kind of a small thing in, some resp in the report, given other things the report says, but it makes note of NORAD and Air Force efforts to, quote, upgrade aircraft that monitor the U.S. airspace with new sensors capable of tracking and targeting challenging offensive air threats like advanced cruise missiles. So the DOD is not standing still against this, but it's, I just want to give broader context of the cruise missile, missile threat from Russia. Uh, I'll say two other things and stop. First, if we are to develop, were to develop a new ground launch cruise missile for Europe and for Asia, I think it will almost certainly be conventional. I don't expect that the DOD is going to pursue a nuclear option. Very hard to see that any European countries would want to host additional nuclear weapons in their on their soil, the countries that do play host to U.S. nuclear weapons now under the NATO, uh, under NATO, have their own political issues and problems already with it. Uh, and then the last thing I'd say is that, well, I won't say that. I'll save this for later. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Tom? Thank you. Thank you, JB. Um, so... Thank you. Great, great remarks. I'll, I'll address some of them, some of the differing viewpoints of some of these things on this. Um, and, yeah, I, I agree that, you know, the U.S. decision to, you know, announce their suspension and potential withdrawal here um, did not come lightly, as both of you know. In the past administration, we've been raising these and preventing uh, and presenting uh, detailed uh, evidence of their violations um, for over five years with this. Um, and it was met, as Brian touched with, you know, with, you know, lies, you know, changing stories, um, denial, um, you know, until we put some of this stuff out, out in the public uh, sector on this. And so it was not – I don't see a desire from then. And uh, even now, since the announcement in December, you know, Russia has a clear path if they desire to return to compliance, and we don't see them doing that. Um, you know, even with, you know, 
giving time for our European allies to, you know, to talk to them. I, and um, and I don't, I don't, I'm not confident that I see that happening in the near future. Retur Russia returning to compliance, um, you know, they've said for years, you know. You know, President Putin and others in Russia that you know they kind of view some of the INF pieces as counter to their desires. Um, they also see, as, as Brian said, right, there's over 30 other nations uh, that have fielded inter conventional intermediate range, you know, level crews and ballistic missiles. Um, Russia themselves are concerned about Chinese capabilities in this regard, as well as other um, nations, as you know, India, um, in out this area that, that are their neighbors that provide these capabilities. So I think they've seen that they see this threat. Because under INF, right, Russia and U.S. are the only nations in the world prevented from having conventional missiles even in this range group. Um, and so that provides these other nations a, a military advantage that we don't have. I think additionally, um, viewing Russia's actions with, with INF, the violations, the, you know, the lies, the kind of deceit in this place, um, needs to be also looked at how Russia views, I think, some other other treaties and arms control agreements they have. Um, our own State Department, you know, has, has, has publicly stated that, you know, in addition to INF, Russia has al also not been complying with other, you know, arms control uh, agreements. You know, Open Skies Treaty, they've been preventing us and they haven't been fully complying with the Open Skies Treaty. Chemical Weapons Convention, right? They've done some violations, we said, of that. Uh, and the Conventional Armed Forces in Europe Treaty, you know, they unilaterally withdrew with that, you know, several years ago when they, you know, counter to their desires again in Ukraine, Crimea, and other areas. So we need to look at where, how Russia views, you know, these international norms and arms treaties um, going forward with this. Um, but again, I agree. I think the U.S. should continue to work and try to convince Russia to come back to the table. Um, it may not be the same INF treaty, because I think we need to consider the, you know, the, the threat environment of 2018, 2019 is vastly different uh, than the global you know, threat environment and the capabilities were out there in 1987 when this treaty was initially uh, signed. Um, U.S. and Russia, to their credit, both you know, have, uh, you know, put out and tried and I think 2007 urged other nations to join uh, the INF Treaty and to ban these weapons. Um, not surprisingly, China, uh, you know, was not receptive to that. And I can see that. Um, you know, China right now, their, their strategy of anti-access, anti-denial of, of controlling what they want to do and, and where they're looking with their desires in the South China Sea is primarily based upon their ground-launched uh, crews and ballistic missile defenses, which they have and, you know, in numbers in the U.S. and other our allies do not. Um, so, you know, to get to the negotiating table, there has to be, you know, a desire in there and something to kind of drive them to that realm. And right now, they'll be unilaterally giving up a military advantage. So I don't, I think there's, we should work towards that, but I think, uh, you know, what form that takes. And, but I think there's driving in this perspective, I think, there is a need for some capabilities at least being developed, whether they're fielded, I think, because they can drive potentially others to come back to the negotiating table. I mean, the same thing happened, if we look back with the initial INF uh, in the 80s, 
right? We were working with Russia for a long time, but it wasn't until we actually deployed the Pershing II that the Russians said, come to the table because, all right, you give up, you give up yours, we'll give up theirs in that perspective. Uh, so kind of with, with that as, as the background, um, you know, I have, I have some recommendations of, I think, things that the U.S. should do and Congress should continue doing um, as we go forward with this. Um, both the Department of Defense of Congress, you know, have um, urged and uh, provided uh, funding for uh, the U.S. to develop uh, some low-yield nuclear deterrence capabilities, sea-based. Uh, again, not uh, violating any INF uh, limitations in that respect. Um, and also, they see the need of, in a broader piece, of a conventional of potential capabilities, ground launch cruise missiles and ground and uh, cruise missile defense in Europe. Um, and that pursuit, I think, I think that would help, um, you know, assure our NATO allies also show a capability uh, deployed for the Russians that may help, again, bring them back to the negotiating table. Because, uh, again, right now, I don't think they see a need to do that. Uh, with what they've done. So part of that is, uh, again, I think Congress should continue to support the Department of Defense in, in uh, developing and fielding a low-yield uh, submarine-launched ballistic missile as a hedge, and also as well as uh, nuclear-armed low-yield sea-launched cruise missiles. Um, and Rebecca said, and I, I agree that the nuclear triad as we have it, it's a strategic deterrent, um, is a great deterrent for things. Uh, what worries me, specifically with Russia, is that, you know, as they've set out in some of their own military strategy, you know, as people tend to call the escalate to de-escalate piece, um, it's a key part of their piece, um, their military strategy that, you know, they would use a low-yield uh, nuclear missile in, you know, a conflict uh, to achieve their desired impact or force, coerce uh, U.S. and NATO allies um, to negotiate on their on their terms in this regard. Uh, and the key piece I see that these capabilities provide, right now the U.S. doesn't have a commensurate response. Whether we'd use it is, I think it's the deterrent piece to that, of knowing that we could respond in kind. I think right now they're, they're kind of know that, you know, we don't, other than a few, um, you know, dual use, you know, aircraft in Europe with some, you know, uh, nuclear bombs, we don't really have a commensurate capability to what they could potentially put here in that. So I think I don't think we're deterring them as well in this regard. And so I think we need to continue those those two uh, systems. Um, same thing. I think you know Russia with their deployment of the uh, you know their these you know INF violating ground launch cruise missiles, uh, I think gives them a military advantage for the range and things as we go forward. Um, so there, I think, you know, Congress is supported. DOD is already looking at it. Um, I think we need to continue and potentially accelerate uh, a ground-launched, you know, cruise missile system. Um, maybe, again, as we've seen, maybe just the development and maybe not have to field it, but maybe that uh, threat of doing it will bring them back. We'll see. Um, but, again, to get it out there to be efficient in cost, I think we could – do a version that is based upon some existing, you know, a sea-launched or air-launched missile that we could uh, put on a, a mobile uh, base, such as, um, for example, the, the JASM uh, missile we have out there, or the Tomahawk, would be a piece that we could uh, provide a quick turn on this uh, for this regard. And again, it goes beyond, in this perspective, uh, tying to what Brian said, I think it goes beyond just the Russia issue. Um, again, this goes also to the China issue of providing a capability, again, uh, that 
you know, if we deploy these, it may, again, provide them with a, a, an incentive to maybe come to the table and talk about at least some limitations on conventional um, intermediate range uh, missiles. Right now, they have, there's no incentive for them to do that. I know a lot of people have said, uh, both in Europe and, you know, and even in the, the Indo-Pacific region, that, uh, well, we don't need ground-based systems because we, can, we have sea-based systems. We can use our ships. Um, from that perspective, I say we've, you know, we're limited. Payload is a limited uh, issue we have with our ships, especially in the Indo-Pacific, for being able to do different multi-mission sets and things. And to me, you know, it also complicates, you know, their, their planning. If I not just have to worry about some ships, if I could potentially have mobile-based systems on various islands throughout there, our allies, um, it complicates their problems and things, and then maybe the calculus that, okay, maybe I'm in a situation where I'm not going to have that advantage I thought I had, maybe deter them from doing actions or, again, bring them back, maybe willing to discuss some, at least some limitations on there of what they're having to deal with in that respect. Um, same thing, cruise missile defense, I think, uh, and again, I agree too. Uh, Conus, it's a it's a threat. It's a it's a weakness for us. And again, in Europe, um, I think uh, you know, I think some NATO allies. I agree. Any deployment of these systems should be in conjunction with uh, with our NATO allies and discussions with them. But I think uh, it's a significant capability gap. Is the absence of of, of you know a robust uh, cruise missile defense in Europe. Um, in that regard, and so I think we need to have those that piece um, in there also. Um, lastly, you know, I think it's uh, not a near term, but again, I think we need to look of what happens over the next several years. Are we able to get Russia to come back and negotiate an updated INF um, and hopefully get others to come in here, whether this is uh, just looking at, you know, okay, we're just going to ban the nuclear system, nuclear missiles in this range, or, or limitations on uh, conventional missiles in there. But especially in the nuclear side, if we're not able to get them back, and this is where I think not necessarily going forward and deploying, but having the conversation with our NATO allies, this is the conversation we need to have together. Um, is it come to the point where we, there's an advantage uh, to bring Russia back to the table or deterrence that we would need to deploy a ground-launched uh, nuclear missile going forward? So those are my initial thoughts. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you very much for the remarks. Before we go into how we disagree, let's talk about how we agree. And this is a pretty um, a balanced panel. We've got both sides of the debate represented. Um, and, and one of the things that is maybe not so clear to you all is that not everybody agrees that, that the Russians are violating the INF. Uh, Reuters uh, came out uh, just last week with an article that said basically the United States has given no proof that they have done this. And I'll throw this out to the panel. Each of the members has already touched on this, but do you think that they are in violation of it? And how specifically, if you can mention it, are they violating uh, the INF Treaty as it stands right today? Uh, I don't have any doubt that they're in violation of the treaty. Um, during the administ Obama administration when the formal statement was made in the 2014 State Department compliance report that they were in violation. Uh, it was based on sensitive intelligence of what we had seen um, them do. Now DOD has since said that they have deployed some of these systems. Um, the Russians 
have argued that it is not a violation. And we had some challenges with our European partners because of the sensitivity of the intelligence and even persuading some of them. Um, I gather now, just watching the actions at the NATO ministerial and the statement that endorsed essentially the U.S. position, uh, that they've overcome that hurdle and persuaded our European partners that Russia is in violation, but the problem is still explaining that in a public way as to why. Mr. Rebecca, any other thoughts? No, I mean, I don't have any doubt about <laughs> fundamental violation. And it's true, Russia <laughs> violates lots of things. So um, that's that doesn't surprise me. Um, that doesn't mean we don't hold any responsibility for how the situation has unfolded. Um, and the balancing act that I think Brian alluded to in terms of how much information do you reveal in order to make sure that um, partners and allies understand and are on board with our position and balancing sensitive intelligence with the need to share information. And that, that threshold is very challenging in Europe because it's not just a matter of convincing them in governments um, as to the nature of the violation and the fact that it's occurred, but what they have repeatedly claimed a need for was the type of information that could be shared very publicly as part of the broader challenge they faced in terms of communicating with their own publics. So that only makes the problem, I think that Brian explained very well, even harder. So um, that's something we need to work on, but it doesn't change kind of the fundamental noncompliance or, in my opinion, the fact that um, I feel our European allies should have come along uh, faster uh, in that process. Great. Tom? Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think in everything I've seen before and stuff like that, I think they're definitely in violation. We've provided them uh, numerous uh, details of information at various levels uh, amongst there. You know, Brian was definitely was, – he said he was part of that piece. And I think, again, you look at what Russia does. I think they, they try to, right, complicate, right? Then they accuse us of being violation and – and we've not. We've read information that we are not in violating. Again, our, our NATO allies all agreed that we are not in violation, but that's kind of their modus operandi, right? Well, if you accuse me, I'm going to accuse you and, you're, you know, uh, put, put it back on you as part of their, you know, information campaign that they're very good at, at doing. Uh, they do in not just this case, but a lot of other cases. Just one other quick comment on that, too, though, because I have encountered I was in I was in Europe this fall talking about these issues. I have encountered in European publics deep skepticism about the validity of US intelligence. So definitely there you can have skeptics to the point of no, we don't believe you. Honestly, as someone who works across kind of the spectrum of of, of views here in the United States and a pretty, you know, polarized nuclear policy community, I actually don't run into folks even in that community who say it isn't a violation. Just disagreement what to do about it. But I think the uh, article you, you point to is really an outlier. I don't think there's much debate internally. Wonderful. So uh, this uh, debate swirls around a couple of things. And one of them uh, most people agree on, and I think the panel does as well, is we need to bring the – drive the, the Russians back to the table to start uh, negotiating in earnest with a new uh, potential version of this, if not to recover the one that we're in, but to, to go forward and, and, uh, and, and rebuild this treaty. How do you bring we, – we've talked about what we don't want to do in some measures, but how do you suggest we bring the, the Russians back to the table in earnest with the want and will to comply with the treaty that they've signed up to? Well, 
Um, so, you know, I'm really not sure that we necessarily want to, and I think here the verb is important, drive the Russians back to the negotiating table. I think that I would like to see the Russians see a vested interest in the benefits to having an arms control, a bilateral arms control relationship with the United States that's based on New START, would be ideally be based on INF, or could be based on one or more successor agreements. But I don't know that whipping them to the table, especially by virtue of deploying additional capabilities and seeking to kind of, you know, provoke a kind of arms race, I don't really see that as accomplishing much in terms of sincere negotiations. And I think most of our allies and partners will not support that approach, will not support additional deployments. The last thing they want to see is some replay of Pershing. And therefore, we'd actually would undercut our position with the Russians rather than advance it. So let me change the verb then. How do you entice them into compliance? Well, I think, first of all, we try to stabilize the situation. That's why, actually, I would pivot to New START. I would focus on the treaty where we have a degree of compliance, one of the only treaties where we have compliance. I would shore that up and work my way out from there. And kind of set aside the inter intermediate range thought. Yeah, th there's a very big difference between taking a treaty and trying to return to compliance, but but where you're not going to have to negotiate and therefore ratify an entirely new document or saying I want to go negotiate something new with the Russians or the Russians plus other people. There's really – they don't even belong in the same sentence. So I think deciding which one of those things we want to try to do would be very different paths. So let me uh, pivot over to the other side of the table. Uh, Tom, you talked about – methods with which to basically drive them back, right? Deploying uh, Glickum and a Pershing II complementary system. I was in Europe uh, when that was going on, and it was a very turbulent time. Uh, there were protests everywhere. At the time, Reagan was the devil um, because of those deployments. And so the, the amount of angst that this would uh, cause within the alliance would be significant. Could you talk to us about that and how we might be able to work through that in order to bring or entice the uh, the Russians back? Yeah, and again, not driving them, but trying to entice, give them an incentive, I guess, incentivizing them to, to do this. And again, and on that, right, I think the, a ground-launched nuclear cruise missile, I think, is the last resort. And even that piece, I think we need to talk to our allies about that feasibility in the piece. I think the others come up, I think, are – the other piece, I think, the near term, right? Having the the sea base low yield as a counter is a, is a deterrence piece there, um, especially being you know, if it's submarine based, they don't they have to assume it's always there as a, as a deterrent ready ready to be uh, to be applied. Um, and then I think in the defensive piece and the more the conventional piece again, um, York, you know, I think there I think there'll be less. Uh, you know, less angst amongst, uh, I think, the NATO allies. I think on a, the offensive capability, I can see an offensive ground loss cruise missile. There may be some. I think defensive capabilities, trying to defend against Russia, I think there might be some. But I, to me, to me, that doesn't make, you know, from an American perspective, it doesn't make as much sense. Why would you, we're trying to put something to defend you against a threat that is very real against these, um, you know, because, any missiles they're putting there, right, are not an immediate threat to the U.S. They're an immediate threat to our, our NATO and European allies. And so the things we're doing is to try to, you know, show that we are a 
peace. We're a part of NATO. We're there to help them, and we're putting in, trying to put and develop or deploy capabilities to help their own defense and increase that defense piece. So I think it's, that's the message we're getting. We need to get across, and then hopefully having these Russia seeing that okay, U.S. is putting things that are going to reduce my advantage. Um, maybe it's worthwhile to come back and you know incentivize them. Vice <laughs> drive. Now, how about you, Brian? So in. I would just focus on the near term here if there is, in fact, a possibility of salvaging the treaty before the withdrawal notice and then the six-month period runs. The Russians and the United States met in Geneva last week, I think, um, and the Undersecretary of State for Arms Control declared the Russian position and arguments unsatisfactory. So to me, that they were declaring there's no possibility of moving forward. I don't know what the Russians offer, whether they brought the same old uh, playbook or they dangled something a little bit new to try to entice the United States to do something. But i not holding out great hope that the Russians are being sincere. Uh, it still feels like we should be caught trying one last time at creative diplomacy to see if there's some way to salvage the treaty. We would have to go in there and do some verification. I think we could come up with some sort of uh, understanding that wouldn't require a new treaty that would have to go to the Senate. We would have to give up something in terms of satisfying Russian objections that are main. They have three arguments about why we are violating the treaty. Two of them are just completely ridiculous. The third one is only slightly ridiculous. Um, and I think their real concern is the third one, which is that our Aegis Ashore site in Romania and the one under construction in Poland violates the treaty. So we would have to think about, can we let them come look at it, crawl around it, see and verify our position that it is not going to be loaded with tomahawks aimed at them, but it has defensive missiles aimed at a possible threat coming from the Middle East. That will be hard. We thought about this in the department. Um, the Aegis Shore system looks a lot like the launch system on a Navy ship. So the reason it's not the same is uh, the software and the fire control systems and a few of the bells and whistles, but a lot of it looks the same. So the Russians, they may not believe us or would choose not to believe us even if we showed it to them. But I, I just think, <clears throat> as I said in my opening remarks, I don't think the administration really wants to save the treaty. But I, I think if the Russians, if we do something in this period after we declare suspension of obligations that shows them a new capability or a different capability that they weren't expecting, they might come back and say, okay, let's try one more time. And I think that would be worth exploring. Outstanding. So we've had a, an explosion of technology the last several years, and we've had uh, proliferation, actually, nuclear proliferation become an issue. There are lots of nations that are on the cusp, if not well into the, uh, the faculties of being able to drop a nuclear weapon. Uh, and then you add in GPS, you add in the drones that are out there. Many nations may very soon have the ability to be a player in this world. So now uh, let me open the aperture a little bit. Do we expand the, uh, the, the, uh, the horizon of this next potential treaty to where we start including China, maybe um, North Korea, uh, maybe Pakistan, other nations into this? What are your thoughts on maybe the next round of what an INF would look like? Who is included and what weapon systems are included in that? Tom, you want to start us off? Sure. Um, and again, I think, uh, you know, a – in INF, as it's currently written with the ban on, you know, the current bans on conventional 
uh, and and nuclear, you know, intermediate range missiles, I, I think, would be a non-starter for China in this regard. I think there's no incentive for them to go down down that path and give it their military advantage. Um, and this is where I think you know we'd have to show some capability or to play that that would you know provide them incentive that they see a need to at least maybe limit the number of uh, you know of conventional missiles in there. I think more. You might be able to get them more likely in, in the nuclear side, I think, um, potentially. But again, it's, you know, it's not just looking at, you know, you know, you got to look at China and, and even looking at Russia, too, of where they see the other threats to themselves in this regard. In other nations right now that even have, you know, range, you know, you know, nuclear missiles in this regard. So I think it's going to be difficult, I think, to do that. I think there's... I'm fully on board with trying this piece, but I think it'd be very difficult um, to get all the nations that have intermediate nuclear missiles to sign on board for a defense. Because some of those nations, that's all they have. That's the range they have in those uh, in those missiles. Do their their technical capability um, in that regard, and you know even the conventional piece, right? That that is their true military. Uh, advantage. They don't have the Navy. They don't have the long-range bombers and some of the things that provide uh, that long reach to defend themselves. So I think there's, it's worthwhile to go down that path, but I'm not highly confident that we'd be able to get these other nations on board with some, without some shift uh, in capability or something that would, they would see an advantage to do that or limits, limitations for themselves. Uh, the only thing I'd add is I think Tom referenced in his opening remarks uh, that, I mean, the Russians have long complained about the treaty being unfair and burdening them because of threats that they perceive uh, to their south, not just the Chinese, but uh, from South Asia. And there was an effort made late in the Bush 43 administration to pursue a quote-unquote globalization of the treaty, and I believe Secretary Gates and Rice had a meeting with their counterparts where they kicked that off in 2007, but it it never got very far, and then came the Russian activity in Georgia uh, in the summer of 2008 and put relationships on ice for a little while. I, I wouldn't be very sanguine that all these other countries are going to sign up to uh, a global INF treaty. I, I think that's it's worth talking about. It's worth pursuing, I think, as part of the diplomatic strategy to show that we've tried and we've gone the extra mile and that the Russians are fully to blame. But I, I wouldn't be very optimistic that such a thing would happen. Anything to add? All right, I'll just be a little more blunt. <laughs> um, personally, I think for the most part, people who are pushing and using kind of the we need to multilateralize the treaty buzzword are actually the most ardent opponents of the treaty to begin with. And it's really just another kill vehicle on the treaty. Um, you cannot create a, I don't believe, a multilateral vehicle, whether, you know, this one or a different one, where there's such fundamental lack of parity and such dramatic asymmetries among the likely parties. You can't really get there from here. Um, so whenever we have a multilateral arms control agreement, it is either because we are all, you know, there is agreement on getting to some position of parity or you're starting at some sort of position of parity, right? Um, you can manage the asymmetries in there. The list of countries you described and the types of capabilities and the incentives are so wildly dissimilar that I'm just not convinced it's a very serious approach. Um, and I do think it's important to remember, um, as we talk about all these countries and their capabilities, 
it, unite almost all. I can't th actually can't think of a counterexample. All of them are deploying capabilities on their own territory. When they talk about you know intermediate range missile capabilities on their own territory to deal with perimeter threats, hmm. we don't have that. Right? We don't have our own territory, with the possible exception of like Guam. We only have alliance partners on which to deploy those capabilities in an extended frame. So that's our huge asymmetry, right? It's not on our own territory. So I think that there's just some big challenges in trying to take that, an already difficult problem, and let's just go make it 3,000 times harder. Yeah, very fair. And it, just to get the agreement with Russia right now sounds like a pretty big challenge. Um, so let's uh, turn this a little bit. Um, we talked a, a little – uh, several of us have touched on the fact that we could move conventional uh, ground-launched cruise missiles into – uh, into Europe, maybe as a counter. That's also part of this current treaty. It bans that, that, that facet. So if you were to sit back and say there's going to be a change, one change that might be um, doable for everyone is maybe a defensive mechanism. Uh, we talked about the Russians um, and uh, the NORTHCOM commander saying that we are currently at threat, um, uh, in threat range in rings of uh, of current Russian cruise missiles, which is kind of a, a significant add in this environment. It's no longer Europe that we're talking about. So should we, as the states, uh, the United States, and maybe as NATO uh, partners and alliance, should we build a defensive um, uh, a network uh, where we have uh, things like uh, J-Lens that's, that's out there looking and we have interceptors that have the ability to take out um, these cruise missiles, the potential here and the potential in Europe. Is that something? It would be very expensive, but let me have your thoughts on that, where that would put us in this relationship with Russia now. So just on the practicalities, I mean, in terms of the North American territory and what NORAD will be looking at in the near term, there's something called the North Warning System, which is an array of radars at the north end of the Canadian border, which is going to um, – age out is not the right word, become obsolescent sometime in the next decade. So NORAD is looking at um, doing a study of what to do about that. Um, but cruise missile defense is quite expensive. You need a lot of sensors. Uh, and then in addition, you need a lot of different interceptors. Um, the J-Lens that you referred to, I forget what the acronym stands for. Um, everything in DOD must have an acronym. Uh, but it was a big aerostat blimp, essentially, that was undergoing a test uh, up near Aberdeen Proving Ground, and then it got loose and went flying into the Pennsylvania countryside and program. The test period of two or three years got uh, canceled. I understand it. I'm not a scientist. I understand it's a great radar, and the, the folks who work on this really were enthused about its prospects. Uh, but I don't know what the department is doing to – whether they're going to try to revive J-Lens or bring it back in uh, some other form. But unless you've got a, a significant radar and sensor capability, cruise missile defense is really, really difficult in Europe. It'd be difficult just about anywhere. Tom, you want to touch on it? Um, yes. And I, I, you know, we can't for, you know, the whole United States, you know, even East Coast, uh, it would be, and I think, very cost prohibitive to defend everything, but you know, could you have areas in certain? You know, I think, uh, could you defend certain areas with interceptors? Um, but again, the key, uh, and in Europe, again, certain areas where you see these things potentially coming in, high value areas of our of our NATO allies in that regard. Um, 
But again, the key factor with this, because uh, right now all all the missile defense systems we have that have any capability against cruise missiles are all ground-based radars and point defense missiles. So again, that becomes, you know, a lot of missiles to potentially carry them very little time to react. Um, so being able to have a height of eye uh, system, 360-degree view, I think at least for uh, in a warning system, be able to give you more options at an earlier range to interdict them, whether it's other ground launch missile systems, whether it's aircraft with missile or whatever, it provides you more opportunity to that. And that's the key. Um, JLINS, which again, uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a look it up the other day too. It, it stands for Joint Land Attack Cruise Missile Defense Elevated Netter, Netted Sensor System. So a, a name that's even longer than the acronym uh, in that regard. But um, and it had, it was not a perfect program. It had budget delays, technology issues, and then the fact that they didn't do certain things like the battery and other things that went wrong with it that caused it to break free. But I think one of the things that in the time it did is it showed the advantage of, of a height of eye system that was designed to be operated you now up to 10,000 feet uh, that gives me a 360 review, potentially out to 340 miles. And that piece, I think at least from a, a warning piece and then and then it's how much you want to put in, you know, what we could then use to, to defend with it, um, I think is key uh, for us. And I think that would reassure, you know, our our European allies and they're having that capability. And if you know that you can be sensed that potentially, uh, you know, those cruisers will be interdicted at a farther range, right, then that makes the adversary less likely to use them if they, as opposed to they think, well, they can only detect it in the last, you know, 10 to 12 miles, and, and by the way, their radar systems are looking in one sector. So if I come in the back door, it gives, increases my range. So in that perspective, I think we need to look a way to do it. They can provide those capabilities and be somewhat cost effective in certain areas. Um, but I think there is an advantage to that, at least from somewhat deterrent capability. You're not going to get everything, but at least provide some capability in that regard. Uh, just one thing, Tom, to correct you on, I think I have this right. We, we don't always have, only have ground-based capability. The, the quotation I read from the Missile Defense Review talks about upgrading radars on aircraft, reducing cruise missile defense. No, and, I'm yeah. familiar with what that is. Yeah, I mean, we do have some systems too, but again, depending where you want to be, if you then go into aircraft-based systems, uh, traditionally fixed-wing manned aircraft, um, the number you then have, to if you need to, if you need to have a 24-7, in warning, or if I think I'm just going to use it in a, in a heightened threat piece, that's the piece that comes into this too. It's again, it comes to numbers and capacity in that regard. Well, Brian, that's uh, they they're refitting many of the jets with a, a radar that's really sensitive called the AESA radar. It's an electronically scanned array, and it has the ability to see a long range at low altitude. Uh, it, it takes clutter, which is ground returns, and filters that out, and allows you to see very small targets a long way out. The problem is you have to have that coverage 24-7, and that gets to be very expensive. And the enduring nature of something like a J-Lens, while it has just a nightmarish uh, uh, chain behind hmm. it or train behind it, um, it gives you an enduring 24-7, uh, nobody up in that little dirigible trying to fall asleep on you kind of capability. Uh, so that's, uh, that's that. 
Anything to add, Rebecca? Well, we're uh, about to throw out uh, a couple of uh, opportunities for questions. So if you're game, um, just give me a, a couple of thoughts as far as administration goes. One, would you wait until – raise your hand. Wait until you get a microphone. And we've got a couple of folks who are bearing those around the room. Second is when you get it, um, make sure that you've got a question, not a stance or a statement to make of the panel. And then third, please uh, give us your name. And if you're uh, with an organization, go ahead and, uh, and state that out loud. With that, uh, if you have a question, please uh, feel free to raise your hand. Yes, sir, here in the front row, Megan. Uh, Bob Shadler, American Foreign Policy Council. Thank you very much for an enlightening panel. Um, my question is, given a post-INF world, what would be the top pluses and minuses from a Russian and a Chinese perspective? Are they pleased? Are they displeased to go into the next five or 10 years without an INF treaty? Well, that's a great question. Now, which of our voluntary panel members is going to uh, field that? Brian, you want to take a hack at it? Since the Russians made a decision some time ago to violate the treaty, running the risk that they would be caught, guess they're not bothered by it, ultimately. Uh, that was my perception. Uh, we'll see, I guess, if DOD puts something out there and they get concerned about what that capability is and they decide to think anew. But for now, in my view as Russians, I've already made that calculation. The Chinese may be concerned if they see us developing something and deploying it in Asia. Uh, and again, I don't know if that's a near-term thing. We'd have to find posts for it uh, unless we're going to put everything in Guam. And I don't – I really don't think it would be a nuclear capability. I think it would be conventional precision fires. Um, so the Chinese may be disturbed by it. Any uh, negatives? That, uh, we haven't really talked about that, and that was one of his questions. What negatives are they facing? Obviously, they're willing to face the negatives, but what negatives are going to be levied on them if this treaty comes to an end? I mean, I'll, I'll, on, the China, on the China piece, I think, again, if, if the U.S. does uh, develop and field, you know, conventional intermediate range, you know, missiles um, that – you know, I think in that regard, I think some of our allies over there would be, you know, receptive of, of those capabilities, again, provide those against the Chinese. So I think uh, that would be a negative to them, right, seeing a counter to some of their their ground-launched uh, missiles in that area that now they have to deal with, um, I think, would be a negative for them. Um, again, Russia, again, it would depend on, I think, um, I don't think they really care about public uh, – the rest of the public perception and Europe's perception of them. So again, I think it would have to be if the U.S. or others field some capability that they, th they see as, as a threat to them. So there's no penalties coming their way right now. Is that, is that a fact? There are no penalties for them other than losing the treaty and the protections that are associated with it? Well, that depends. <laughs> And I think that's actually the thing. I think we're looking for the answer to be right in the same lane in terms of these capabilities in the region. I don't actually think that's where either Russia or China are looking. I think if in a post-INF world, the dissolution of the treaty has brought 
um, the United States and its alliances in those respective regions closer, then they'll have regret. If it has further divided us, they'll be happy. Um, and that's where they've been sort of gambling. Um, if you look at it that way, Russia has been enjoying the benefits of the treaty while acquiring capabilities that are prohibited and then having the pleasure of watching us have trouble getting on the same page with our allies. So I think they're infinitely more concerned about what does this periphery look like in a political way than they are concerned about whether we manage to get some sort of glycum in production and scare them back into compliance. That's a great point. This uh, cohesion of the alliance and the, uh, the binding of it together or the separation of it and we deploy a glycum in Europe and what happens? We certainly face uh, the friction associated with being inside the uh, – the countries that may not necessarily want that system, right? Any other thoughts, Ron? Okay. Uh, next question. Oh, in the corner. Go ahead, Mike. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is H.W. I'm over at the uh, Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe now. Um, my question is, <clears throat> our foreign policy with Russia under President Nixon was detente, and um, President Reagan helped prove that, you know, well, I'm sorry, let me backtrack. They kind of ceded that they had more power and influence than they really did. President Reagan uh, helped end the Cold War by proving that wasn't true. Uh, my question is, is that Russian, Russia's recent behavior in the last six years is really undermining political and uh, civil security throughout the world. How could this or how do you view this, the INF, as a platform for them to like kind of continue um, the undermining, do we really think it's as um, bad as what we believe, or could they just be puffing up their chest again like during the Cold War? So, H.W., when you say that they're puffing up their chest, could you give me a little bit more fidelity with that? Right. So, uh, essentially, with the INF, is this just another platform similar to the Cold War where we think that they are as powerful as – they really are, or is it just um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, well, let me let me gather my thoughts and come back. No, I'll uh, I'll say that uh, they are a powerful nation, and they do appear to have a system deployed that is a little bit more capable, at least as far as as a low yield weapon than what we've got out there. So um, this is a, a little bit of an offset, whether you want to counter that offset or not. Um, that's, that's a thing in its entirety, but, but they do have um, cards to play here. And, uh, and it appears that they are actually um, putting more money out on the table while we're wondering what to do, whether we walk away from the table or not. Okay. I, I got it now. All right. So is this more of, are they more trying to get us to spend more money like President Reagan did? Okay. Or is it – does that make more sense? Like are they trying to get us to improve our capabilities, spend more money, and get us to run ourselves into the ground, raising our debt? Or is this going in a different direction? Are we actually seriously, you know, um, on the brink here? All right. I think that's got fidelity to it. Anybody want to take it? Are they playing a strategic game? and trying to do it financially. Well, with regard to the missile that we believe violates the treaty, I think they perceive some capability gap in Europe, uh, particularly because of our overwhelming conventional 
power that has led them to develop this missile. More broadly, with their foreign policy, their plays in the Middle East, uh, what they've done to interfere with elections both here and in Europe, it's playing a game of asymmetric power using from a position, I think, of relative weakness as compared to the United States. I don't want to diminish them as not being powerful, but they're still not the global power that the United States is, uh, to try to undermine the United States and European institutions and weaken the alliance, and all in service of their security interests. And the longstanding Russian history tells us they want they have they are paranoid about security on their borders, and they want a buffer. And they've sought to get it in various ways, and one of the ways is to weaken Europe, so that Europe and the United States and NATO don't do not pose a security threat to them. Back. I would just say, you know, I've heard a lot of people say this before in various ways. Um, you know, the old uh, Russia plays a weak hand very well. The, the bottom line is the status quo continuing spells decline for Russia. So they've got to break the status quo somehow in order to shift that balance. And that's the competitive game I think they're playing. So the question is, are they trying to push us to expend resource or in, in some way? I don't really think it's a financial thing they're trying to push us to expend. I think it's political. I think they're trying to outspend on the political front. And that's where I think the alliance context and our ability to stand with 28, 29, you know, 30 nations is the part they're really trying to break. That's what they're trying to break. Um, I don't think it's really a dollars and cents question, but just my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree, Brian, and uh, Rebecca's comments on that of what they're trying to do. And, and regarding this, I think, you know, the capabilities of this missile system are, are real. Um, and, and the dividing and creating a doubt amongst weak, trying to weaken the, the, the NATO union with the, the U.S., um, I do think there's other areas where I think, you know, uh, Putin and Russia have been maybe trying to kind of overstate uh, their capabilities or say that they have something that may just still be a, a PowerPoint, you know, some of their – what they've said, some of their hypersonic missiles and some of these advanced capabilities. Um, I don't think they're maybe there yet or as mature or have the capabilities they say. And so that way I think is, is a key way that I think he's trying to – you know, overplay and say, I have systems that the U.S. can't defeat. And in that way, maybe trying to, you know, weaken uh, the U.S.-European alliance of them feeling that we can't be there to help, uh, you know, we don't have the capabilities to help protect them in that regard. So, again, it's more of a political play than a spending piece. Because I think even with our budget issues uh, in the long, the long term, the spending piece, I think, weighs in our favor just like it did in the Cold War. Fantastic. We've got a question right over here. Hi, I'm Jason with Defense News. Um, great segue, by the way. How do hypersonic technology change the game in that intermediate range? Because those missiles can't can't catch the hypersonics, and it looks like Russia has the capability. We have the capability. We're improving that capability. Maybe the delivery system's not there, but we're working on it. Great question. Anybody want to take Jason's question? Our missile defenses have never been aimed at stopping the Russian deterrent, and even the missile defense review issued last week by DOD, which is very forward-leaning on a few futuristic things, restated that basic element of American 
policy. So I'm not sure hypersonics changes the game all that much because we have never sought a capability to, to, to stop the Russian strategic systems with our missile defense. Yeah, I guess it depends whether, you know, they're deploying, you know, nuclear hypersonic systems as part of a, an advanced, another way of doing an adv a strategic um, deterrent piece or whether it's a conventional, you know, piece that they would use, you know, in a different realm. In that regard, I think hypersonics are very hard. The the physics of it, you know, we can easily prove, um, especially with more the, the boost glide that U U.S., Russia, China are developing that, you know, is very fast and can maneuver that the physics of missile defense and being able to hit something at that high speed uh, that could potentially be changing direction is not predictable like a ballistic missile. Ballistic missiles are hypersonic speeds, but, you know, we don't talk about that because it's a predictable path. The, the advantage of these new systems is because they can maneuver more in that piece. And I think that's going to be a very hard piece for the U.S. or anyone to defend against going forward in this piece. Anything, Dan? Thank you, Jason. And we've got a question right up here in the front row. Um, Stina Traxted, I'm with Danish Public Broadcasting, um, so one of the European partners covering this. Um, you hold the microphone up. Yes, sorry. Thank you, ma'am. So if the danger here, as Rebecca is talking about, is really political and, and about uh, how strong the alliance is um, in a post-INF world, um, and this might be a more political question, but how would you look at the, the strategically the way uh, the Trump administration has is now withdrawing from INF and how it plays into European politics? Um, we've had an administration in the U.S. withdrawing from a lot of international uh, agreements, uh, which has uh, colored European partners' views on the administration. So I'm wondering if you play into a Russian hand here by uh, the way of withdrawing, and would there be any other way you would, you you know, how could you have done this in a way where it doesn't play into uh, Russia's hand, um, looking as though the U.S. is really the ones pushing this, uh, this change? It's a great question. Well, I think the way the administration started uh, this conversation did play in Russian hands a little bit because there didn't appear to have been a lot of consultation with the allies. Mr. Bolton made a statement that seemed somewhat um, out of the blue, and then the president said something on the campaign trail that we were planning to get out, and that by all that I could see and from talking to people was not well coordinated with the allies, and people in Congress were surprised by it. So then they kind of hit the reset button and did some diplomacy, and you had the NATO ministerial that Secretary of State Pompeo was at, where you had a unified NATO statement. That was the right way to do it. Uh, and they extended the clock, if you will, because of the concerns expressed by European uh, partners. I think, to, as I said earlier, I think <clears throat> we should be, uh, to lose, use a colloquial term that my boss, Joe Biden, uses a lot, we should be caught trying to save the treaty, even if we know the Russians are not bargaining in good faith, we should go the extra mile. I don't think the meeting that they had in Geneva, I don't think we wanted that outcome of saving the treaty. I think there are people in the administration and the White House want to want to get out from under the treaty, uh, either because they don't like arms control or the DOD imperative uh, to have be free of the treaty in Asia. Could I chime in on yes, that? Yes, ma'am. Um, 
I think there's three categories of things the United States has been doing that makes this problem much harder. Um, first of all, is just a fundamental lack of discipline. The policy gets made one place, something else is said. There was, by my understanding, a pretty sophisticated, well-thought-out rollout plan for dealing with the INF and the decisions that were going to be made regarding U.S. participation in it. And I would say that's something, you know, an administration of any color was going to face because it had been going on before. The chaos of how that was announced, how it was non-rolled out, um, you know, it's, there's really no explaining it, except that it's just a very chaotic environment. So that's one, lack of discipline. Um, the reality is the United States has been very inconsistent on principles of compliance. Is noncompliance a reason to withdraw from a treaty? When a party is in compliance, does that you still you still withdraw? When you you know what are the what are our rationales for deciding that the rules should continue to apply or should not? And we have been, frankly, tremendously inconsistent, and that's problematic. We might want to try to think about how to be more consistent in our own positions. And finally, I think one thing that's been very problematic in INF is conflating the capability gap arguments with the compliance arguments. Because for one thing that's happening is it makes our argument about compliance as the principal justification for terminating the treaty seem profoundly insincere. It appears, you know, we want to, you know, this is a point of principle. This isn't a valid treaty. You can't have two parties to a treaty. One party's not complying. One party is. That's not a real agreement. Okay, that's true. But... If you then say, and oh, by the way, we want to, you know, use these capabilities in Europe, and wouldn't it be nice if we had them in China, and we'll do all these things, and oh, by the way, we need more low yield, and da-da-da-da-da, that sort of sounds like that whole compliance thing was an excuse, and that's how it gets perceived by many of the allies. So being more consistent, actually believing in compliance, um, and walking, walking the walk on that, and being more disciplined in our international interactions would go a long way to making this less bad. Yeah, um, and I, I agree that, uh, you know, the administration is, you know, did not do this the best way. And, and there's been some confusion and, you know, and where do we stand on certain things with this regard. And so, um, and I'll take a, a different tact on this piece because I see, yeah, it maybe wasn't handled the best way in, in how the European allies are, are viewing that. Um, and so I kind of see that, okay, that's past, right? You know, we can't go back and change how that was rolled out, how that went. Um, but what are things that we can counter maybe to um, going forward with this piece of both uh, reassure them uh, that, you know, we're unified and that we're there, you know, to help them, you know, especially um, with Russian aggression, this piece. And so there um, I'd like to see more continued of working together some of the, big, you know, doing the exercises, working together with our NATO allies, um, you know, trying to do some more of these large-scale exercises. To me, that shows, as a messaging point, that shows the unity of the U.S. and all our NATO allies in these areas um, and demonstrating us working together. Um, and that piece, there's a different piece of they, Russia see, hey, they're working together, they're training together, uh, and that, that perspective going forward. I think the other piece, whether it, how it went and some of the things are done, you know, I think wasn't the best way. But again, that's kind of what can we do going forward? And I think some of these things working and trying to continue the conversation, be aligned with our allies 
understanding uh, their views, but also showing them how, you know, if the U.S. is trying to do some of the things, how it really is for the, you know, especially defensive systems and conventional systems, how it could be for the benefit of their own defense going forward in this regard. And just doing it for our own benefit. I think a lot of these things is really truly for the benefit of, you know, the European allies and their defense. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, Brian, you look like you were chambered to say something, were you? Uh, Christina, I promise I'll come back to you. No, I was just wondering, but you, you disagree that this is just political. This is also a capability question, right? No, I, I think, I, I, I mean, there is a, there is a capability gap. I think the piece of them being in violation is the foundation of why the U.S. is withdrawing of, new, you know, five years in, in obfuscation. But they're, they're deploying a, a violating system provides them with a military advantage in Europe over the U.S. and the NATO allies. Uh, uh, you know, they saw a gap that developed. They did it for a reason. Developing and feeling the system, even a conventional-based system, they saw a need and a gap they were meeting. Um, and so that there is an advantage that they have over our NATO allies that are there, whether we were there or not. But I think, you know, we are tied to them and helping to defend them. So there, there is a, a piece in there. I don't think it, sh it should be, you know, it's not used as, I don't agree that that should be used as a defense. And, and it may then talking about what we're going to do next step, I can see Rebecca's point that, okay, they, some European allies would see, okay, well, this is the real reason you had in there. And, and even some of our uh, military leadership, you know, um, you know, especially, you know, in Asia and stuff like that, you know, PACOM commanders have said that, you know, the Chinese having these capabilities is, you know, is a real threat to us in this piece. So that that is a piece of the the disadvantage we put ourselves in of the U.S. And, and Russia s says the same thing too, right? Why they did it is they saw ourselves at a, themselves at a disadvantage with their, you know, these their neighbor nations to the southeast, you know, South Asia that they saw had this advantage over them that they didn't. And that's, I mean, wherever you go, I think that's a piece that plays into this. Uh, and again, it may the European allies it may say okay then may not as board on board with the U.S. withdrawing that you just wanted to do this for another reason. But I think it is it's something can't be discounted in this going forward in this piece of and where we put ourselves and how the U.S. and both Russia viewed that piece. Anything to add to that, Brian? I said in the opening um, remarks that I thought if Putin wanted to divide NATO. In 2014, he'd, he'd failed insofar as the, the alliance itself is stronger militarily and generally unified politically. But the wild card here, of course, is the president's own schizophrenia about NATO. Uh, some days saying he supports NATO and he wants everyone to invest more, and other days apparently threatening to withdraw, which I think I was reported in the newspaper recently, but I've also heard it from people in the government that during the NATO summit they were asking questions. He was asking questions about withdrawal. So that obviously makes our European partners nervous and is an overlay to all of this. What a great question. I huh? got a lot of uh, returns out of that. So thank you very much. Um, we are just about out of time. Does anyone have one last round? Yes, sir. We'll take uh, one last question. Hi. Uh, my name is Mikhail Turgiev. I'm a journalist from Russian news agency, RIA Novosti. So, uh, Rebecca, you spoke a little bit about U.S. inconsistency as well. So uh, the question is... Um, why do you believe that START treaty will be prolonged? I'm just to clarify, did you ask 
Why do I believe it will be prolonged or why do I believe it should be? Should be or will be what? So because uh, Russia's, uh, uh, well, the opinion which sounds in Russia is that uh, withdrawal from the INF Treaty is the first step to quit start treaty, after all. So. I, I just haven't seen any indication of that, actually. We haven't seen any decline in compliance with New START. Both countries met the central limits, it seems for now. At least both countries are finding compliance to be in their national interests. I'm suggesting that there's no reason to suggest they wouldn't continue to do so for the next five years. And that would, in fact, provide benefit to both countries through the transparency that the treaty provides, through the stabilization it provides in Europe, um, to a, a level of confidence and consistency in terms of overall numbers and limiting a sense of arms racing. So far, both countries are benefiting from that. If, as long as that continues to be the case, we should continue to do that. Outstanding. Well, I don't know if you've enjoyed the answers as much as I have. This has been a great panel. No matter which side of this argument you're on, you, it's hard to really do battle with the, uh, the way these things, the, the points have been brought up, and I really have enjoyed it. Would you guys take a moment to give these three people a round of applause? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our panel on the INF. Grateful for your attendance and hope you come back for another event here at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you very much.